0: So the words of the Lord are what we've been looking at in terms of their use in our ability to overcome all kinds of temptations and trials. Imagine that you have something in your mind that will overcome any temptation, any trial. It's amazing to think about that I have within my heart the very thing that will overcome any trial or any test. Uh, reading this today uh, in Psalms, Psalm 126, Psalm the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth refined seven times. The words of the Lord are pure words. Now, for something to be refined seven times, it would be at a 99.999% purity. And that's what's in view in this passage is the purity of God's word. But we shouldn't miss the connection between purity and refinement that is, in fact, a pressure, a heat, a trial. And that's when you refine metals that is often referred to in that context of the fact that it's a test. And so when you're in a test, you're being refined. Uh, You're being made more pure. The word of God in you is being made more pure. When you, when you go into a test, would you rather have something at your disposal that has been refined seven times? In other words, it's been tested for thousands of years and shown itself to be pure. Would you rather have that or something else which is of a human philosophy? Because that's what people generally have when they're facing trials. They're either facing it with the Word of God or they're facing it with some kind of human philosophy or ideology. Human philosophies have been tried and tried and tried again and again. They're not refined seven times because they never pass the first test. Human philosophies always fail. We have new philosophies out now that are only repackaged old ones that have already failed a bunch of times. And so we have, this is what you, ha- you and I have. You and I can have within our hearts something so pure that it could withstand seven tests one after another. Let's turn in our Bibles to X, uh, Sorry, Deuteronomy. We're going to go straight to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 8. <clears throat> let's begin with prayers we do. Let's thank God for our time here to be able to hear His Word and to be able to be refreshed, cleansed. As the Word of God says its Word does, refreshes us, awakens us, refines us. And uh, with humility is the key to being a learner of God's word. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the time that we have to be with you and with your word. Every word in your word is carefully measured out. But together they produce for us ideas concepts, truths that come directly from you. It is astounding how much is here. And so as we come to it every single time, we are newly refreshed, newly discovering things, newly being grown in our own wisdom. But Father, also through your word, we are drawn close to you so that we can have a relationship with you that is real, not something mystical or made up, but an actual real walk with you, that is based upon the very refined, true words that you have given us. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit within, who makes those words alive, and also for our Lord Jesus Christ, through through whose sacrifice uh, we have the life that makes this all a reality. Thank you for him and his sacrifice. Thank you for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the... (coughs) <coughs> the um, trials of Christ, the three of them, are tied to the Exodus. Uh, we looked uh, at the last two classes. We looked at the first one of these. Uh, the second two now we'll deal with today, which is, the, first off, uh, <coughs> Jesus, again, he's going to quote from Deuteronomy. All three times in, every, in each trial, he's going to quote from Deuteronomy, twice from chapter 6, once from chapter 8. The, um, the fact that he goes into the wilderness for 40 days is not a mistake, meaning the timing and the place. Uh, the place is where the exodus were, was, uh, where they received the law, where they were tested themselves. They were tested for 40 years. Jesus is tested for 40 days. This is no mistake. And Jesus, therefore, is going to be, and this is vital to this, Jesus is, and he knows this, That he has to be the one who does it right. And when, uh, as Israel was tested and failed, he has to be tested and passed. And he does, beautifully. The key to us, and we're starting with this. I have not started this with really the elevation of Christ, which we will do next. But I've started this with the application to us. And um, after I realized I did that, I was like, why did I do that? And I... Can't really tell you why. <laughs> Hopefully it's the Holy Spirit. So, in uh, <coughs> the uh, Exodus, we're tested with hunger. We're tested with hunger. We've seen this in the last two classes. By the fact that we deny, or that we, if we're spirit-led, spiritual people, we deny our flesh. We deny our flesh. Certain things, certain events, certain times. Uh, We make ourselves do things that at times we don't want to do. And so we're starving uh, our flesh and our flesh hungers. And as our flesh hungers for things that we're not given it, uh, we're tempted in those areas. And Satan knows where we are weak, and he is going to use those areas against us. The thing for us, as we've seen here, is that once I come to know that, I don't think you have to be a Christian very long before you come to know what areas you have that are areas of weakness, find passages that directly attack those temptations. Not just any passage. Jesus doesn't pick any passage. He picks passages. He he cites them word for word. Believing them, he cites them at the one who is tempting him. In other words, the word itself, known and believed and understood completely defeats that test. And then the temptation is no longer a temptation. And But that what he quotes is absolutely specific to what he's being tested on. And same for us. If your test is loneliness, if your test is uh, some kind of chemical addiction, if your test is uh, a relationship, find it. Find the passages, and there will be more than one, that you can cling to. And put them as close to memory as you can, and then recite them. Now, this, this has worked marvelously for not just any, I mean, it's worked for me amazingly, um, and it has worked for 2,000 years, <laughs> you know. It, it has worked and worked and worked. All right, so the next thing that we see, well, let's review this real quick. Exodus were tested by hunger. Jesus is tested by hunger. After forty days, he becomes hungry. In Deuteronomy eight three it says, "He humbled you and let you be hungry." I, I can't repeat this enough. That when you're tested, now as we learn from uh, the the Word of God, that God doesn't test anyone. Right? He's and this is in James one. We'll spend a class on James one that God isn't testing you per se. It's Satan is the one that's testing the Lord, not God. Just God led him to this place of testing. And we are going to, we don't have to be led to it, but we're going to face it. And God is allowing it. So let you be hungry. It doesn't mean that you're going to die of hunger. right? The Jews should have known this. The Exodus should have known this. After you see ten plagues in Egypt and you see the Red Sea split and then you see the bitter waters turn sweet, uh, you know, water coming from a rock, manna from heaven, over and over and over, yeah, I don't think we have anything to worry about. And so when they're tempted with hunger, this is what they should have said, is what the Lord said. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor your fathers know that he might make you understand. That man does not live by bread alone. See, God is imputing, implanting is a better word, a truth in our hearts that we're so easily, because we're earthbound and we're we're born in these fleshly bodies, that we do still think that our lives are based on material things. And God says, no, they are not. Not when you're a citizen of heaven, they're not. Not when you're my child, they're not. Your life is not based upon food, or clothing, or water, or shelter. It's not based upon that anymore. It's based on something far higher. So high, it comes from the heavens. The Word of God. Which, what, you know, what does the Word of God relate to us? The kingdom of God, the ways of God, the truths of God, the love of God, the gifts of God, the blessings of God, the ability to give to another as God gives to me. To reciprocate love to him and then love to others. An amazing life of which when you're on that plane food doesn't matter. You'll get the food. It'll come. Jesus knows this. Which gets to the third temptation which is waiting. All right. Obey while you wait. I'll get ahead of myself. So uh, again... He made you understand. He's letting you be hungry. For you and me, believer, he's letting us be tried and tested so that we will understand something. Therefore, it's the only way we can understand this, is that we have to go through trials. So I hope after this study that when the trials come you start to we know when they come, you start to feel the angst, you start to feel you feel it. Like here's another thing that's on my heart, or another person in my life, or another situation. That you say before you fall apart, I'm not saying you fall apart, but hopefully very soon after the trial starts that you say, ah, this is so that God is making me understand. And that therefore, this is for my good. It's my blessing. I can't wait to see what God's going to teach me in it. All right. Next is Israel is promised a kingdom. Go to Deuteronomy 6. So I'm going in Luke's order here. Uh, The reason why I'm doing that is because Deuteronomy is in this order. When I say Luke's order, uh, Matthew's order of the three trials is not the same as Luke's. Uh, In Luke, we have the promise the kingdoms of the earth is the second trial, and then jump off the pinnacle of the temple is the third trial. It's likely that Matthew's is more of the... uh, the one that's actual chronological, because in Matthew's is where the Lord tells Satan at the end of the bow down and worship me trial, get, go Satan. He tells him to depart. And so that's likely in Matthew's gospel that he has the right order. Uh, Why Luke changed the order? If it is a change, somebody's is a change, (laughs) then, uh, you know, we don't really know why. But um, anyway, we kind of, We could delve down that road, but let's not waste time on that. Israel was also promised a kingdom. So as Satan says here, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. He he shows them to him. Uh, The the language in Matthew's text says that he takes them up to an extremely high mountain. It would have to be. uh, Maybe they're up in outer space somewhere. Who knows? But they're looking at the kingdoms of the world. And not just the kingdoms. There's another phrase there. And their glory. So that's important. You're not just seeing the kingdoms from a distance. Say, "Oh, that looks nice." No, their glory is. We're going to look at that. What is the glory of a human kingdom? Deuteronomy six ten. Jesus is going to say, "You shall worship the Lord in Him only." But that's in verse thirteen. But let's look at the context because Israel is also promised a kingdom, just like Jesus is promised a kingdom. Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers. Deuteronomy 6.10 Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant and you shall eat and be satisfied. Now, that's a kingdom. It's... Not a walled kingdom, but it's a kingdom. It's splendid cities and all the blessings and accoutrements that go with them. And it's all, notice, given to you. You didn't build it. So I'm giving these to you, God says. And we, in the church, where's our kingdom? It's in heaven. We call it the New Jerusalem. We're not there yet, but we know that we're members of it, as the word of God says. We're a part of the holy priesthood of the new kingdom. We're sons and daughters of God that belong in the house that is the new kingdom. Colossians 1.13 says that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, we are members of the kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we're in possession of that kingdom. And everything that goes with it. Now, Israel's promised the promised land. And in that land, well, it's earthly. And so you need water. There's the hewn cisterns. You need food. There's the, the groves, the olive groves, and the, the vineyards. A land flowing with milk and honey. Now, what's our land flowing with? It's not that. Our land is flowing with love, peace, patience. Joy, I missed that one. It's flowing with righteousness. It's flowing with justice. It's flowing with truth, power, wisdom, comfort, forgiveness. The list goes on and on. That's our kingdom. And you see now, earthly kingdoms, oh man, they promise it all the time. Right, we have an election year this year, every leap year. Someone pointed out to me and said, you know, yeah, it's a leap year, <laughs> every leap year. And we were joking at the fact that the, leap year is the election year is on a leap year so that they have that extra day in February to just, I don't know, campaign or have more news stories or whatever. But what about the earthly kingdoms? Well, here comes the test. Take any one of these things that the divine kingdom gives you, like love. Satan from the earthly kingdom says, Look, you don't need love up there. I've got it for you here. And so he takes you in a way to this high mountain and says, Behold, the kingdom of love. And if we're smart, you know, if we're if we're not educated in the Word of God, if we don't know, we'll we'll say, Well, maybe, yeah, maybe. Maybe I find love in romance. Maybe I find love in family. Maybe I find love in work. Maybe I find love in academia. Maybe I find love in knowledge, earthly knowledge. Maybe I find love in money. If I get enough money, people will love me. And Satan says, yes, I have it all for you. But we with the Word of God say, ah, I mean, not even in family do I get this love. And if anybody who has like I, I think of my family, my I adore them. My love for them is abounds. But that's not God that's not where God's love is found. Even my love for my little girl, it's not found there. If I don't have God's love, I'm no good to that little girl. But Satan says you don't need God's love because To understand God's love, correct, and it's true with all of these virtues, you've got to go hungry. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to be spiritual. You don't know God's love unless you lay down your life. You don't know God's love unless you love Him in return, which means that you give up all idols. you, You cannot be a carnal Christian and know what love is. You just don't. You may know of it, but you don't know it. And so Satan says, oh, you can bypass all of that kind of work, and I'll just give it to you. So what do the earthly kingdoms offer? It could be wealth. You know, wealth is another thing. That's why the earthly kingdoms offer um and, you know, I thought of this, you know, God says, or Jesus says, blessed are the poor, and, and I wonder to myself, I, I I think of these things all the time. I know it's a stupid thing to think of, but why didn't God make everybody poor? You know, blessed are the poor, make us all poor. But human, the human race has to have resources. We have to have resources to live. We need food and water and and shelter, and there needs to be an abundance of that because we're not smart enough to not waste what God gives us. So what we have on earth is an abundance of goods by which we need to survive. And there's no way in a fallen world that those goods are going to be evenly distributed to everybody. No way. In a fallen world, some are going to be, through lies, through deceit, through murder, they're going to take more of those goods and then use that position of power to lord it over the others just inevitable put a bunch of fallen men on a planet with the goods that they need to survive and just let it be let them have their free will and all the power is going to end up in someone's hands in a a small group eventually actually very rapidly Uh, so you know I don't have and by the way there's probably zero chance that I'm going to become a billionaire So I'm not going to be one of these elites that meets every, what do they meet every year at Davos or wherever that place is, and they twist their snidely mustaches and they plan world power, Uh, whatever, I'm not going to be invited there ever. But we are offered the things of the kingdom of the world, the things of the kingdom of heaven, and and, uh, Satan promises them from the world. So in in whatever earthly way, your promise that you can have peace, your promise that you can have joy, fulfillment, laughter, contentment, uh, that you'll be a success, that you'll be at peace, that you'll have everything that you could have ever dreamed, and all of it will come from the earthly kingdom. But then Satan gives this caveat, and this is amazing, if you fall down and worship me. Generally, kingdom temptations come from what a human kingdom can offer, and what do they offer? First off, there's governors or rulers. One of the things that a human kingdom offers is position, positions of authority. Jesus spoke of this in the upper room in Luke 22. At the Lord's Supper, he said, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority. Authority over them are called benefactors. And he said, it's not so with you. Because you're not of this world. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. If you have a position in a human kingdom, it comes with wealth and power. I heard of a, a story, story, a historical story uh, yesterday. Yesterday. Uh, something that's happening currently in universities and corporations in the West, especially in America now, that in the 30s, uh, in Germany, in Germany in the 90, early 30s, 20s and 30s, had 19, 20s and 30s, had the greatest universities in the world. Not even Harvard or Yale in our country were comparable. The greatest scientists, the greatest thinkers were coming out of Germany. But then as after World War I and Germany was in extreme poverty, this National Socialist Party with Hitler at its head started to rise. And as they started to rise, their anti-Semitism came against the, the population. And the first thing that they did to Jews was to remove them from positions. Right? So the, that's the first thing. The first act of anti-Semitism was not to lock them up, or to smash their stores, but to actually remove them from positions, especially if those positions were dealing with the state. So in a lot of the universities, these great, like Brandenburg, these great universities that dealt with the state, they were removing Jews from positions of office. All right, so what does that do? And you would never, you say, well, that's all anti-Semitism. Right, it's true. And, but what about the Gentile German people? Who were like okay with that. Because they were. They were okay with that. Why is that? Well, you could take their jobs. You see, I'm willing to go in with what the world, the kingdom says. I know it's wrong. You know, these, these Jews are my colleagues who are professors. But now there's an open position. And I get promoted. Now, the same thing has happened in America now, in academia. All the conservative, white, you know, that's been the wokeism, the the diversity, equity, inclusion program has removed people from positions of power. And the other people are like, yeah, they applaud that. Not because they believe the philosophy, but because they can get the job. They get the promotion. And as we're seeing now, that means that people who actually can't do a good job, they don't do the work or have the credentials to be there, but they have the title, the money, and the authority. Beautiful. What does that come from? The kingdom. It turns out that it is true that the root of all evil is the love of money. The promotion of all philosophies are behind it. So what does this tell us about the world kingdom? That the dream of position, the dream of wealth, the dream of you know people acknowledging me, the dream of success in the world is offered to you. I'm, it may not be a university position. It may not be a position in government. It's just anything, anything that I can dream of by which if I leave or ignore the Word of God, that I could possibly go for it, or at least dream of it. But when the Word of God is your number one priority, none of those things matter to you. If you get promoted, fine, in the world, but it's not your number one priority. And that is a temptation of kingdom, of power, wealth, position, Um, also welfare, that's another one, where the kingdoms of the earth offer welfare. Now, in some cases, welfare is absolutely necessary, but not in all, not nearly as much as it is in our society. (coughs) The worship or giving your life to the kingdom of the earth can refer to someone who is looking to the state as a benefactor or a parent or a provider and really, therefore, looking at the state as God. You know, Especially when I can work. But I can rely upon the state. So what is the kingdom of the world offering? Position, wealth, uh, some philosophies and ideologies. Uh, it's offering things to mankind all the way down from the highest positions to the lowest place of welfare. The kingdoms of the earth offer us positions or um, you know, the things that we desire, that we're, we should be only looking to God for. When we look at uh, welfare, it's really a security. I need security. But where's, and in some cases, it's absolutely necessary that there's a, a, a lowest percentage of people in any society who need that windfall. They need that safety net. And we should provide that as a society, I truly believe. But that turns out to be a very small portion of the population. To um, look to the state for security. But even if you did need welfare, you would not be looking to the state for security. And no human being should. We're not here only talking about believers. But God has a design of this on all human beings. Believers and unbelievers. So um, passages that refute or are a response to when we are tempted or tested in our desire for success or position or more money, uh, fear of, you know, we have a inflation. We've had inflation now for a couple of years. The price of gas was fortunately going down a little bit, but it's still much higher than it was. It costs more to live, food, fuel. Uh, utilities, from what I, you know, utilities are through the roof. And, uh, you know, we can start to get fear about, you know, we're going to go without. God says, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's right in this passage, too. Don't be concerned about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear. Consider the lilies. And, And Jesus wants us to absolutely do that, to picture in our minds a beautiful flower and go, you know what? He takes care of them. He'll take care of us. It doesn't mean that you're not going to go through a trial. That may be of a financial nature. It just means that you should have no anxiety in it whatsoever. Because when the test comes and it feels like you're in the wilderness, a passage like this and some others I'll show you, you just throw those right at the problem. Matthew 6.33, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I've got a huge problem here, but what I need to do is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I've got an enormous financial burden all of a sudden, but what I need to do is not worry about that. I may need to look to get do more work or find another source of income. That's true, but I'm not going to worry about it. God will open doors. He takes care of the birds. He'll take care of me. Romans 14, 17 for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's my kingdom. And when, if I'm in a trial where you know, I'm, I'm pressured by whatever, a relationship trial, a trial of, of, of the state. Say so I get falsely accused of something and I have to spend money on lawyers and stuff. And I'm not guilty. And it's so unfair. Oh, how do we deal with great unfairness? Generally, not well. But if we actually thought for a minute, and I recommend, highly recommend prayer here, if you're in trial and you're not praying about it every day, I'd ask you, what are you doing <laughs> Get praying? You should be praying every day anyway. But, um, you know, why? Remember, God, remind me, what is this for? Don't you have all things under control? All things are in your hand. The very hairs of my head are numbered. You know everything about me and what I would face, and yet you have allowed this. I've made you hungry, God. Well, oh, sorry. I let you be hungry so that you would understand. And then this is a beautiful verse to remember. The kingdom of God is not in eating and drinking. The kingdom of the earth is. They all are. All the kingdoms of the earth are about that. But you see, these things don't come from the earth. Righteousness, peace, Holy Spirit, none of them come from the earth. They're all from heaven. James 2.5, God did not choose the poor. Did not God choose, <laughs> you've to be careful of your word order. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? What an awesome verse. Did, and, and James is writing to uh, Jews that are dispersed from Jerusalem, and they are in love with money. They're Christians. James 1.18 describes them as believers, and uh, they're going out of their way to uh, bow down to the rich. It's in the book of James where he says, you see a rich man come in and you say, oh, please come sit over here at this head of the table. And then a poor man comes in and you say to him, and this is what the Greek says, sit under my footstool. In other words, go sit on the floor over there and shut up. And that's what, they, what was going on with them. How could this be? As if material that someone has. But think about it. If you're around a wealthy person, a rich person, do you treat them differently? I I, I decide I'm decided to read the, the my next quest of reading is uh, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Now it's one of these classics that I was like, you know, I should probably read a classic. And I am amazed at this book. And the characters it, it's I don't know. I don't know if it'd be for everybody. It's definitely out of my wheelhouse. I'm usually reading history or <laughs> theology. But this is just a cast of characters that are rich British people in the eighteen hundreds who are so pompous, hence pride, and they're so ridiculous, hence prejudice. Uh, and their whole lives are around money, position, what your estate look like. That's all that matters. But there's there's a character in it who Jane makes, who is a character of character. She has a character. Elizabeth. She's the one who stands out. She thinks. The others don't. (laughs) They just want money, and they want to get married, and they want to go to tea and play cards, and it's just money, money, money. Amazing. I love this. God chose the poor of this world. Wait, There's no rich believers? Look, rich believers who understand what the faith is about, do not consider themselves rich. They don't. Because this the wealth of this world means nothing in light of God's purpose and plan. So Jesus is tempted, amazing to me, that he can take over the kingdoms of the earth through Satan. Satan offers this. So we have to think about this a bit, and you know, because it seems ridiculous to us, and I think it is ridiculous. But let's just say that this is an offer he considers, which he does not. He could bypass the cross, so to speak, I guess. I mean, this is all conjecture and stupid because he doesn't do it. But he could bypass the cross, let's say, and create a world... That is ruled by him. Now I know I've done this before. And I thought about it again. I don't normally think about such things. Because it's not real. But imagine this world right now. Is completely taken over by the Lord Jesus Christ. So. Uh, there's no more elections. He's the king. No, Nobody gets elected. Um, he only puts good, righteous people in power. There's no more crime. I, I wouldn't say no more, but as soon as crime is committed, it is executed under the law of, of quickly, swiftly, completely. Uh, so criminals are dealt with immediately. Crime would plummet. There'd be none. Uh, there would be uh, fair laws Fair governments, fair courts, everywhere totally enforced. The economy would be robust. No one would get to cheat. No more cheating. No more secret deals. No more secret bank accounts. No more drugs. No more fentanyl. Just killing people. Yeah, it's the highest. Uh, the greatest cause of death between the ages of 18 and 30-something right now in the United States is fentanyl. You believe that? Um, No more drugs, gangs. Not to mention we see him in the Gospels, in his humanity, controlling weather. So he would make a perfect planet. It sounds like a wonderful world. And it would be. It would be. It's better than anything by far that has existed anywhere in human history. And this would be all over the earth. Perhaps some of us would say, you know what, Jesus, maybe you should take that offer. But this is not, that world that I just described is not the world that Jesus came to create. His goal is the kingdom of heaven, not the best version of the kingdom of men. If Jesus had taken over the kingdoms of the world and made this world finally fair and prosperous... Everywhere, we would still die, men would still die, and men would still sin. And what was the penalty of eating from the tree of the the knowledge of good and evil? You eat of it, you'll die. The dying of mankind needed to be eradicated. The sin of mankind needed to be eradicated. You see, Jesus could have taken all of these kingdoms and made a perfectly wonderful, fair, just, material world. But he said, I don't want that remotely. It's not about material. It's about life. And life is in God's kingdom. That kingdom is from heaven. If we were still under sin and death, even if we had the most wonderful lives, you know, earthly speaking, We would never be free. What Jesus wanted for us was free and unhindered fellowship with God for eternity. If we're still sinners, we can't have unhindered fellowship with God for all of eternity. Sin had to be eradicated. Death had to be eradicated. And so Satan's test was that the kingdoms of the world could come to Christ in another way. If. Now here's this is crazy. Let's say Satan got him to do it. I wouldn't say that Satan would be victorious because there's no victory for Satan ever. The what he wanted here or what would have happened, I don't know, I don't care what he wanted, but what would have happened is that the plan and purposes of God for mankind would have failed. If Jesus had said, "You know what? That's a great idea. I'll take the kingdoms from you." Forget about the worshiping hymns. I'm not going to worship you. I'll take the kingdoms. If he had done that, the plan of God for mankind fails. The purpose of God for mankind fails. You know, Right from the beginning, when God clothes Adam and Eve after their fall, there's a blood sacrifice. It's right at the beginning. There has to be a sacrifice on which sin is going to be atoned for. Not just the world of sinners made better, but sin gone. But even that, if, if Satan could get Jesus to take the kingdoms of the world in the wrong way, it's still not enough for him. It's, this is incredibly important because he says, look, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you worship me. If Jesus took the kingdoms of the world at that time, God's plan would have failed. But even that was not good enough for Satan, not enough for him, because this is what pride is and does. Pride says it's not enough that God fails. I want to be worshipped too. You see what I mean by that? And that's a a conception of Nebuchadnezzar's 90-foot statue that he made of himself. And he told the people in Babylon, everybody in Babylon and the surrounding areas, which, you know, Babylon was the greatest kingdom of the world at the time. Actually, up to history at that point, Babylon was the greatest kingdom that ever existed. And Nebuchadnezzar is the king of that kingdom. And therefore, he has all power, but still it's not enough for him the riches that nebuchadnezzar has the harem that nebuchadnezzar has the landmass that he has the fact that he can just make say a word and someone is executed people fear him it's all not enough he builds a 90 foot statue or has it built and every time a musical instrument is played anywhere in the kingdom you have to bow down and worship nebuchadnezzar bow down and worship me satan's the same way And this shows you the evil of evil. And look, you and I can be prideful. This is what pride is. Run amok. But, you know, would you want even an ounce of it in yourself? Because this is where it leads eventually. It's not enough that I have victory or that God loses or God fails. I want you to fall down and worship me. So look at Deuteronomy 6.12. So God said, I'm going to give you splendid cities. You didn't build all the assets that go with them. It's gracious to you. I will give it. Then he says in verse 12, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Watch yourself. You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. That's where Jesus quotes from. He does quote it a bit differently than what you read it there, but it's the the same. Which goes to show us that you don't have to memorize word for word. I highly recommend to get as close as you can. But to know the passage, he basically summarizes it with, you shall worship the Lord your God only. At the beginning of this verse, you shall fear. The Lord your God only, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Verse 14, you shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. God's not messing around. I I, I am going to bring it. If you do not worship me. That's exactly what happened. Because they wouldn't do it. When Jesus offered them the kingdom. this really the whole brunt. of The whole message of the Gospel of Matthew. Is that Jesus is the Messiah. And he did offer the kingdom. But because you all wouldn't repent. He took the kingdom away from you. Not, com- not forever. But to bring it back at another time. But to that generation. Who could have received the kingdom of heaven. They would not repent. Worship him only. So look at verse 16. Because this moves us into our next trial. That we're going to look at. He said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. As you tested him at Massah. So notice how intimately this is connected. I've offered you a kingdom God says. Don't forget that I offered it to you. And no. That this is my kingdom, therefore you shall worship me only. Don't worship anything else but me. Okay? And then he says, don't put me to the test. Now, here's the connection. Because this place, Massah, is after they get out of, uh, pass through the Red Sea, and after they pass through the Red Sea and they look back and all the Egyptians are just engulfed in the Red Sea and their enemies have disappeared and they're free. In Exodus 15, they sing this magnificent, is magnificent, worship song. They worship God. Who is like you? Who, and they in this worship song, they say, you will take us to the promised land. Who is like you is going to give us this land. We adore you. You are the strongest. You are the greatest. We adore you. We worship you. They sing it. It's line after line. It goes from verse 1 to verse 21 in Exodus 15. Long worship song. You shall worship me only. And Israel could say, we just did. You destroyed our enemies in the Red Sea. And we have worshipped you. And then they trekking along it's about a day later maybe two somebody notices well a lot of people would have noticed that the water the amount of water that they have is getting somewhat low like now you've got over a million people you need a lot of water and this is a waterless place that they're in so um, you know they just had the too much water problem now they have the no water problem and they, and they They complain. They go to Moses and complain. They grumble at him, and that's Massah, because they find they find some water and then they test it and find out that it's brackish. It's bitter, salt water. Can't drink it. It's like a joke. So worship him only means now. People raise their hands and, and when they sing, they can, you know, do whatever. Whatever you people do visibly that looks like worship. Look, you don't worship Him if you don't trust Him. And it's true. It's a great word for faith, by the way, because faith is not blind. Faith here is based... The faith that we have on the Lord is based upon His Word, His history. Right? We're looking at our Lord in the wilderness and we're saying, well, look, out of you use the Word of God word for word and you defeated the enemy. And that means what? I can do the exact same thing. I have the Word of God. I have the anointing of the Spirit. I'm indwelt by the Spirit. I can be filled with the Spirit. I have the Word of God. I'm also a son of God. Behold, my son in whom I'm well pleased, that's me and you. And so I trust. Faith here is not blind. If he's done it, and I can do it. And you sure can. And our Lord here trusted the Father. And that's in verse 16. So, in this next trial, which is number three, throw yourself down. And then Satan quotes the psalm. He says, Jesus, you're going to quote Scripture? I'll quote Scripture too. It just leads us to a marvelous lesson that just quoting Scripture means nothing if you don't know what it means. So when I say memorize as best that you can the words, I'm assuming that you know, that I know, that I know, <laughs> however that goes, that you understand what they mean, that they're not taken out of context, which is what Satan does when he quotes Psalm 91. He, he quotes it, he applies it completely wrong. But what's the Lord's response? Throw yourself down. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which we just read. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You trust the Lord. Does trust the Lord mean throw yourself off a temple? No. No, it does not. If the voice came to him, a voice came and said, throw yourself down, then he would have. But what Satan wants him to do is to put his life at risk because God promised in Psalm 91 that the angels will bear you up on their hands. So let's see, will it work? What, what Jesus is saying to Satan is that I know that promise will work because I trust him. I don't need to test him. I don't need to test this. I know that it works. It's already been tested. I don't need to test my Lord. So for us, this testing, we'll see it when we get into the, the temptations a little more detailed. That, you know, God's, we know that God says to us, don't go there. You know, say it's a place or a person that is going to lead me into temptation. And I'm like, well, you know what? It's all grace. What does it matter? I'm going to go anyway and just see God if you protect me. God says, don't don't tempt me. I've warned you. Um, God will say to us that I will protect you. So, should I... Put myself at grave financial risk. So God says, as consider the lilies, I take care of them. Don't be worried. I'll take care of you. All right. I'm going to empty my bank account on, I don't know, what? It depends on how much you have. <laughs> uh, but say, Let's say you have enough of a bank account to buy a new sports car. And you just empty it. And you bought it. And I say, well, you know, I, God says he's going to provide all my needs. And now you can't pay your mortgage. You can't pay your kids to go to school. You can't buy food. Right? You've just, you destroyed yourself. And God's going to say, well, well you, you also reap what you sow. You know that, right? I, I gave you promises not to test me and be stupid. I gave you promises so that you can trust me and know that I got your back. Throw yourself down. But notice the next line. Deuteronomy 6.17 You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. Notice, this is what trust is. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers driving out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. See, you don't test me. You trust me. And then you have what? You have victory. And that's what's in 17 through 19. Victory comes from what? Obedience. So when we say, throw, throw yourself down is, no, I trust. So I, I wait and I obey. I wait and I obey. God will... So you know what's really amazing? Another thing that's amazing here is that after these temptations, Jesus is going to start His ministry, and immediately He's going to start doing miracle after miracle after miracle. He's going to go to Galilee, and He's going to start His ministry, and He's going to do miracle after miracle after miracle. But while He's being tested by Satan in the wilderness, <clears throat> but he throughout His ministry, He never, ever once used a miracle to provide his needs. He used a miracle to show them who he was. He used miracles out of compassion for people, for others. But he never used a miracle to make his life easier or to provide for himself in any way. Never once. So, passages for us as you wait in obedience and you don't test the Lord but you trust the Lord. First Peter 5 six and seven. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. I love this verse as well. You ha- we, this should be in your wheelhouse. I think every believer needs it and this should we should have it ready to be quoted. Because when anxiety arises, you should squash it. Before you even think about why is it here, forget about that. You can figure that out when you're calm. Squash, get rid of your anxiety by quoting that. It'll work. Cast my care upon you. It takes faith to do it. And if I do it, I'm calm. Now I can evaluate. What in the heck made me so anxious? Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's an easy one to remember too. Faith is the assurance. You, you, know, you could put in another word for assurance, but just make sure you you remember that part. right? If you, remember, if you don't remember enough of it that it makes sense, and it has this application that faith sees what eyes don't. Habakkuk 2.4 or Habakkuk. I, I never know how to pronounce it. But the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. All believers are tempted by the devil from the source of the devil to abandon strict adherence to God's word. <clears throat> as we're tempted with worldly kingdom, as we're tempted with hunger, as we're going without because we're denying ourselves, as we're tempted to follow worldly philosophies, as we're tested to uh, success and wealth and promotion and position, a desire for security uh, from the world. And as we're tempted not to wait and, and just in anxiety say, God, I'm just going to do it and you know, see if you come through. I'm going to test you. Rather than waiting and trusting and obeying, following the commands. We're all going to be tested. And how many ways is this tested in us? It's just thousands of different ways. I, you know, I try. I started putting a list together, and it got too long. I, and it, you know, and even with the length that I came up with, I knew I wouldn't probably hit what yours is. So I think God leaves it up to you to fill in the blanks of what is your test right now, and whatever it may be, and it's going to come from many places, the Word of God, known, understood, and quoted. Right at that problem is going to be, and it's what is described by Paul, is the sword of the Spirit. So here comes your enemy. Right through him. It's up to you to prepare yourselves with the Word of God, as it is for me. None of this, I trust the Holy Spirit to give me the Word when I need it. Well, you need to know the Word. Then He'll give it to you, but you need to know it first, right? So you need to study it. Jesus said, man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then, and here's the kicker. Once we tap into this, we who are poor. What did James 2 say? I'm, I'm done. Didn't God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? I who am poor, and all of us are are more powerful than the prince of darkness because I have the word of God to shoot at him whenever he shoots at me. I, this poor schmuck sinner who has nothing, I am nothing, I am more powerful because of God in me and his word in me than the prince of darkness who is trying to actually overthrow the lord amazing and that's what you and i have let's pray thank you father for the word thank you that through your word we are warned and exhorted and encouraged reproved and corrected for sure and for all of that too father we are grateful that because of your love and your grace and mercy we are what we are and have what we have May we just simply walk with you and enjoy your presence, Father, in our lives through your word and spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.